Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, Executive Comment Editor, and in this episode we will be discussing the political earthquake that occurred in the United States this week, the election of Donald Trump as President, and its likely effects on British foreign policy. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Rula Khalaf, Deputy Editor of the FT, Philip Stevens, Chief Political Commentator, Janan Ganesh, Political Columnist, and James Blitz, Whitehall Editor. Thank you all for joining me. Theresa May congratulated Mr. Trump on his victory and did what British Prime Ministers always do after a US presidential election. She reiterated the enduring strength of the special relationship between Britain and the United States. Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, later reported that Mr. Trump had spoken of his country's spectacular relationship with the UK in a phone call with Mrs. May on Thursday. Janan Ganesh, Mrs. May uttered the usual bromides about the special relationship with the US, but some in her cabinet, particularly Brexiters like Mr. Johnson, Liam Fox, the Trade Secretary, and David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, see Mr. Trump's victory as an opportunity for Britain, don't they? Yeah, they hope that Britain will move from what Barack Obama called the back of the queue to somewhere nearer the front. And that analysis is predicated on this view that Obama was someone who had a particular distaste for Britain for all sorts of family and historical reasons. And really the natural position of an American president should be quite Anglophile and to make a priority of this country. And I wonder whether that misreads history. Actually, pretty orthodox Washington foreign policy has been ruthlessly pragmatic towards Europe. They'll go to the European country, which is most useful to them or most pivotal at any given moment. And therefore you can't assume that simply because Obama has been replaced by Trump, even if they were right about their analysis of Obama, that Britain will automatically rise to the front of the queue. And none of the structural circumstances have changed. We've still got a vastly smaller economy than theirs. We still have vastly less experience in negotiating trade deals. We have less capacity in our state to do that than they've had for the past 40 years. So I wonder whether they're being a bit optimistic about that. But it should be said that Liam Fox now, his network of contacts which has been cultivated over years, has always been on the right of the Republican Party, and it seemed like a weird bit of the spectrum to cultivate. And now it makes a lot of sense, actually, because you'd assume that the friendly senators towards Trump, some of the people in Trump's own administration, would be people already known to Liam Fox. There were news reports that the government had dispatched Nigel Farage, the former leader of the UK Independence Party, to um, make contact with Mr Trump. Philip Stevens. This is the fantasy um, land that we now live in. I mean, it's quite striking, really, since Brexit, the government has been trying to position Britain as a global leader in free trade. Now, the US has elected avowedly protectionist president, and the same British politicians are saying, this is great for Britain. I mean, this really is pure fantasy land. The truth about Trump is that We don't know how much of what he said is actually going to be turned into policy. So speculating on the British relationship is perilous. What we should know 
is all this sort of talk of trying to preserve, resurrect, sanctify the so-called special relationship is basically demeaning. I mean, we are sort of humiliating ourselves by clinging on to the idea that we are going to be first in any American queue. As Janan said, American administrations are fiercely pragmatic in the promotion of their own national interest. And where we fit in will be decided in Washington, not in London. But it's not clear that this is going to be a usual uh, sort of American administration ruler. I just wanted to add that we're in a period right now where everyone is projecting their best case scenario on Donald Trump. And it is simply because there is an expectation that as president, he's going to be different than candidate Trump. And the very few words that he said since being elected. And I think this is just a period of uncertainty where we don't know where Donald Trump is going to stand on Britain, on Europe. And I just think you have to wait and see. There's just this idea now that, you know, he's going to be good for us. He's going to be good for Europe. And as Philip says, there's a lot of the content of what he said in the past that suggests otherwise. So we're in a period of deep uncertainty. Ruler, you wrote a column this week in which you argued that autocrats around the world will benefit from Mr Trump's victory. It's also true that populist politicians have welcomed the results, notably Marine Le Pen, the leader of France's far-right National Front, who hopes to make it to the runoff in next year's French presidential election. Does the US result change the dynamic of Britain's relationship with the EU in any way? If the Brexit vote no longer looks like an isolated outburst, but is rather part of a wider phenomenon of popular discontent with elites across the Western world. Will EU leaders feel pressure to soften their stance towards the UK and perhaps acknowledge the concerns of their own citizens on questions of migration and identity? That's another theory that's been put forward in the last couple of days by pro-Brexit ministers that Donald Trump will now put pressure on other EU leaders to go easy on Britain. I don't see why Angela Merkel is going to listen to Donald Trump when it comes to the future of the EU and to weaken her hand in negotiations. I think this is, again, part of this projection of great things that are going to come out of this American election. James, is this just pro-Brexit projection here? To some extent it is. I think from the hard Brexit or the pro-Brexit point of view, I mean, at the end of the day... The British are at the beginning of a very, very difficult negotiation in which they hold very few cards. And so when something like the arrival of Donald Trump happens, they're looking to see what are the cards that are suddenly coming into their hands. And as they've said, one of the cards they're hoping is going to come into their hands is that Trump will give some early indication of a UK-US trade deal. We simply don't know. As you rightly say, Ruler, we don't know whether that is something he's going to deliver. They're hoping, which we haven't yet mentioned, that this is going to change the dynamics in terms of security in Europe because, of course, one of the things that Trump appears to be is very ambivalent about NATO. And that is something that is going to worry, obviously, the East European countries a great deal. And the East Europeans up till now have been, some of them have been looking at the UK and saying, if you want to have immigration controls and the free movement in the way you are asking then we are not going to allow you to sell your services to us. There's a trade-off there, which is a real problem for the UK. Now, it may be that the security card becomes a stronger card in the Brexit negotiations. Those countries have to think harder about their stance on the UK, which is one of the big defence spenders. In fact, the biggest defence spender in the EU, and which has just in the last few days deployed more forces in Estonia. So that is, I think, something that they hope is going to change the balance. The problem is that as people who are sort of, if you like, on the civil service side, the permanent diplomats say, 
Trump actually runs up against pretty much everything this country stands for on a very, and has stood for on a very wide range of issues. Climate change, trade, nuclear non-proliferation. That's a really big area we haven't mentioned. I mean, Trump is somebody who wants to put an end to the Iran deal, wants Japan and South Korea potentially to develop their own nuclear weapons, look after themselves in, in Asia. That's all against British interests. So there's a kind of conflict, I think, inside the UK at the moment, which is on the one hand, the Brexiters are saying, let's see what we can grab. And others are saying, actually, we need to make common cause with Europe to try and move Trump away from these kinds of positions. And that's the conflict that exists. I mean, I think this, you know, again, we're back to, to repeat myself, the fantasy land of the Brexiters, that, you know, the idea that a president, as James says, who's positions on the big issues of global politics and economics are almost invariably contrary to the interests of the UK. The idea that somehow you can find in this some net plus is absolutely absurd. I, mean, I think the problem for Britain from Trump is the same as the problem for the rest of the European continent. One, the question, are we after basically 70-odd years going to see the withdrawal of the US security guarantee from Europe, which is a huge shift if it happens. And are we going to see an American president take the US into protectionism and end the liberal era in free trade? If, and it's still an if, Trump goes through with those policies, then it's very bad for Europe very bad for Britain and there are no slivers of silver linings to be found in this. You know, the only hope is he doesn't actually deliver what he says he wants to deliver. The question that then arises though is, does this mean that there's pressure now for the UK to make common cause with Europe? This is the issue now for the British. They're going down a road of disengagement. But we're leaving. Yeah. We're I leaving. Mean, we're not gonna, they're not going to change their mind. And no, say... they're not going to change their mind. They're not going to change their mind on that. But if you're asking for a hard Brexit, that does become harder if at the same time, politically and in security terms, actually, you've got to make common cause. There is a conflict there. That's why I'm wondering how that is going to play out. Well, given his comments this week, I think that's probably a little sophisticated for someone like Boris Johnson to think through. Janan, you wrote a column this week in which you discussed the difficulty that Theresa May has in finding a voice or a leadership style that matches the the turbulence of the times we're living through. And there was a really striking difference between the statement she made after Mr Trump's victory and the statement made by Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, who seemed to um, lay down some conditions for future cooperation with the US. And those conditions were continuing respect for the values of freedom, democracy and the rule of law, values which Mr Trump has appeared to play fast and loose with during this campaign. Yeah, Theresa May got a lot of criticism for this and the juxtaposition was drawn between her statement and Angela Merkel's. Merkel was much more candid about the real German view of Donald Trump. Steinmeier, the foreign minister, was even more candid than she was. And people played it up and said, well, isn't this a model to emulate? Why is Theresa May being so reserved? But you have to remember, our prime minister's response was more in line with the way most countries will respond openly which is we don't want to pick a fight with a new president. It's embarrassing enough that last year we had a parliamentary debate about whether to allow him into the country in future. Whether we like it or not, he's going to be in charge of US trade policy, US external economic policy, US military policy, 
for four years unless something spectacular happens and Mike Pence becomes president. So I think Theresa May's response, although I know I stick to my view that she hasn't yet found a statesman-like or stateswoman-like voice after four months, was pretty understandable. And actually the defection from orthodoxy was the German approach. And they can sort of get away with it because they're a country that's still finding its way as an international player after decades of being quite reticent on the world stage. And I wonder whether in 20 years' time, if Germany has become what they call a, you know, quote-unquote, normal country again internationally, whether they will be quite as vocal as Merkel and Steinmeier were on Wednesday morning. I doubt it. Ruler, I mean, a different interpretation to the one Janan has just proposed is that that was Ms Merkel preparing for German leadership, I mean, particularly if the US is preparing to draw in its horns and withdraw from Europe. Yes, and I think there are going to be a lot of calls on her now to declare that she's running in next year's elections. But I mean, the difference between May and Merkel, I see more as one is speaking from a position of more confidence and strength, and the other one is speaking from a position of weakness. The UK wants a lot from the US right now. It doesn't have a lot of friends. And so I see it more in, in these terms. You, you can't forget history when you're talking about Mrs. Merkel's reaction. I mean, there's two sets of history. One, what happened in the 1930s, where protectionism and world recession provided the soil for fascism, Nazism. And second, for her personally, her experience in East Germany. And, you know, she has lived through the absence of freedom, as it were. So she feels it very strongly. But Ruler's absolutely right now, what we're seeing, and we saw it a little over the refugee question last year, we've certainly seen it in the Eurozone, is circumstances are forcing Germany into European leadership. They don't much like it, but they are becoming the leaders. And Merkel feels confident to stand up and say what she thinks in the knowledge that Washington's first call now is to Berlin, not to London. Mm. James, let's go back to the question of trade. Mr. Trump has signalled that he's prepared to sign a US-UK trade deal in fairly short order. Does that give the UK more leverage in any Brexit negotiations? Well, the issue for the UK as it comes to the Brexit negotiations is that it obviously wants to put immigration controls up. Mrs. Mays made that a priority. But at the same time, it has an aspiration to have extensive privilege access to the single market. If the UK can, in the course of these negotiations, show the Europeans that it has got the possibility of signing free trade agreements with countries outside the EU, those can't be agreed, obviously, until the UK has left. But if it can show that there might be some movement, some trade negotiators think that gives the British leverage. Mrs May has had really very little success so far on that. Um, The Trump election victory has made us forget that at the start of this week, Mrs May was in India. And her Indian trip went pretty badly, to be perfectly honest. I mean, for the first non-EU trip that she made, it was overshadowed by the very strong complaints that the Indian government certainly made in private and hinted at quite strongly in public, that they were really cross with the way in which she's clamping down, has been clamping down over recent years, both as Home Secretary, now as Prime Minister, on Indian student access to the UK. So... She's not getting much progress there. She had a bit more luck, I think, with the Chinese this week with the visit of the vice premier. There was Mm. some progress made on uh, financial services agreements. But I think the US-UK arrangement is the one they're most hoping for. But they do need it because they have remarkably little to show in terms of leverage as they go into the talk. 
And Janan, the mixed outcome of the visit to India, which James was just describing, rather confirms your account of Mrs May's leadership style, that she's trying to govern, as it were, as a Home Secretary rather than as a Prime Minister. Yeah, for the first time in my life, certainly, we have a Prime Minister whose overwhelming priority is not economic growth and competitiveness. She has much more of a Home Office mentality, so she prefers social order over economic dynamism, stability over chaos, and that's quite a big temperamental difference from everyone who has been running this country since the turn of the 1980s. And it did manifest in India quite embarrassingly. I think Narendra Modi said in public, at a public meeting where they were both physically present, education will define our relations going forward, which is a sort of diplomatic, literally diplomatic way of saying, let more of our students in. It's embarrassing that the numbers have fallen down to 12,000 a year, I think, from India to the UK. And I think that will also be an obstacle with other countries. You you know, Australia also complains about its own citizens having a tough time getting into this country because of her policies at the Home Office, which squeezed non-EU migration, even squeezed very high-skilled non-EU migration. And what I can imagine it's resulting in is that if we get a deal in the European Union, which is bad for us economically and interrupts our market access, but which gives us total control over borders and migration... I can imagine her signing up to it in a way I couldn't imagine Cameron, Major, Blair, Brown or even Thatcher signing up to it because their priority would have always been business and growth and competitiveness and she comes from a very different place intellectually. Let's just return to Mr Trump's victory and its implications for a moment. Behind all the frantic Brexiter um, positioning this week in the wake of the election result in the US, behind all that is, is an assumption that... The Brexit vote and the Trump phenomenon of a piece, particularly where the so-called left behind, those who've um, the losers from globalisation. I wonder if any of you would like to just deal with that question. I mean, can we see them as, as phenomena of a similar kind, James? There are certainly a lot of similarities. There was certainly in terms of age profile, for instance, people over the age of 45 tended to vote for Leave, and in the US they voted for Trump. It's also the case that immigration issues of race were very, very strong indeed on both the Leave side and at the same time the Trump side. There are some differences, however. Mr Trump clearly did not appeal to women in anything like as much the same extent as, say, Nigel Farage managed to bring round the female vote in the UK. If you look at the figures in the UK, it's about 50% of women back Leave but the figures in the US are much smaller. But there's also quite a big difference in terms of income. Mm. Mr. Trump tended to be supported a lot more by people on comfortable incomes, people who are also college graduates. That wasn't so much the case with Leave. With Leave, it tended to be people on much poorer incomes that tended to be behind the Leave vote. Philip? I think there are coalitions in all of these things. And, you know, there are, as James said, there are some similarities in groups. But I think one needs to broaden it out a little bit. This isn't just happening in the UK or indeed in the US. Look across Europe and you have populist movements of the right and one or two of the left, as it were, rebelling against elites. And I think fundamentally, when we strip everything away, what we're seeing is a delayed reaction to the financial crash and the subsequent economic recession and austerity programmes after 2008, and to the cultural dislocation that globalisation brings. So I think you will find some similarities with Marine Le Pen's National Front, with the Brexiteers, with Trump. 
But generally speaking, we are seeing a populist insurgency revolt, whatever you want to call it, against the economic terms of economic liberalism and the social dislocation that comes with open borders, globalized world. I agree with all of that, but I think what is really striking is the youth vote because the new generations see the world completely differently today from the baby boomers. And I think this is what we saw with Brexit. This is what we're seeing with Trump. And I suspect that we might very well see the same phenomenon in France, Germany and and elsewhere. And I think that should give us a lot of food for thought. And France is obviously the next chapter in this story, isn't it? And if Madame Le Pen does win, and that looks more plausible perhaps today than it did last week, then these arguments about whether Britain can get a better deal are going to be moot, aren't they? Because the very future of the EU is going to be in peril if if there's a Le Pen government in the Elysee. Yes, absolutely. And I think France is now facing a very testing time because both of the main parties, they have extremely weak leaders in Hollande and also whether in Juppé or in Sarkozy. So this is why there's a sort of move for Macron to stand as a new face. But again, he is also part of the establishment. And the insurgency is against globalization. It's against the establishment. It's against business as usual in, in politics. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all the guests for joining me. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.